0: to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello everyone, it's Wednesday night and that means we are
1: right here with you for Friends in Fiction. We have an amazing evening ahead of us, so let's get started. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan-Henry. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is Friends in Fiction for New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be talking with brilliant best-selling authors, Jason Mott and Jamie Ford. But
2: first, did you know that we at Friends in Fiction are currently reading The Summer Place by Jennifer Weiner and are behind the book club with Fable app? We'll dive deep into the themes, the characters, and I'm leading the discussion this month, sharing all my favorite moments from the book and talking about them with you. All you have to do is read along with us by downloading the Fable app and joining our club, full of behind the scenes info you won't get anywhere else. It's just $5 a month, so visit fable.co backslash friends and fiction to sign up today.
3: And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way, the best way, is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page where you can find Jason's books and Jamie's books and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount.
1: So this week, as you might know, um, if you've been watching the last few weeks, we are going to be giving you all a chance to ask us anything. So if you have a question that you want the four of us to answer or a topic you'd like to discuss, we are all ears. So you can feel free to drop your questions in the comments now for future weeks or um Post them on our Facebook page because we want to hear from you. So this week's question is from Jennifer Jennifer Dooch, who, um, and this one really grabbed my attention. She said, some authors change what genres they write over time. Do you find what you read over time changes also?
3: I, you know, I think it does. Um, I started out writing um, what we call category mystery, and then I kind of morphed into writing now what's called women's fiction. So I read some of that, but I think I read um, more widely. I read some thrillers. I um, read some literary fiction. I, I, I read some romance. Um, I read, you know, and I read nonfiction. I've always kind of liked nonfiction with my journalism background. So, yeah, I think I think my reading um, horizons are very much broadened.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the nice things about being so involved with Friends in Fiction, both in terms of the books we read on the show or, you know, for the show, but also in terms of just the recommendations we get from people in our group. I mean, I feel like people are recommending books all the time that are out of the genre or out of the genres that I normally read in, but you know, you hear a book recommended enough times and you're like, okay, I have to see what all the fuss is about. And I feel like the more I read outside my genre, like I'm reading more thrillers and mysteries than I ever have before. And I like that because I think that every genre has something to teach about the genre that you're writing in. You can always learn from what writers are doing well um, in, other, in other lanes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: I think, just like both of you, I I think it's changed, but for me, not that much. I mean, just like you said, Kristen, I think Friends in Fiction has introduced me to authors I might not have picked up before, but I've always been kind of all over the map. I would read a cereal box if I was (laughs) bored. I mean, I read everything, you know, in, in high school and in college, especially on my bedside table, there'd be a Graham Greene and a Stephen King. So um, I think I still read just as widely. I'm just introduced to more now, throw in a little poetry, a little nonfiction. Um, yeah, I, I I don't think it's changed through time though. I just think that I'm exposed to more through time, but I've always, I've never just said, oh, I only read romance or I only read mystery. So like I said, I'd, I'd read a grocery list, so.
1: I love that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just gonna echo what you guys say because I I really do feel like Friends and Fiction has, um, had me reading a little more widely than, um, maybe I used to, or maybe I normally would. And I feel like, you know, going through school and college and I got my master's in literature. So read a lot of like classics for years and years and years. And then I feel like I went through this phase of like, I'm going to read all beet trees, you know, <laughs> like, just, uh, <laughs> all the cleansers. but, um, um, but I've always loved historical fiction, um, for sure. That's always been like way at the top of my list. But um, and I have not read like thrillers have not been, you know, as much something that I've that I've really read. And and romance wasn't something that I read that much. And so the show has really um, gotten me out of my comfort yeah. zone, I think a lot and reading new things. And I agree with Kristen that everything I read teaches me something about um, how to be about a writer. So that's always really, um, really interesting and exciting. And I feel like I've gotten exposed to, you know, new voices and new worlds um, through the show and the, and the recommendations that people have for us. So, um, well, ladies, thanks for answering that question. And now I'm so excited onto our main event. Let's welcome our first guest for the evening, Jamie Ford. Jamie Ford is the best-selling
3: author of several novels, including Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, which spent two and a half years <laughs> years on the New York Times bestseller list. Not months, right? Two years. <laughs> Hotel book. on the Corner of yeah. Bitter and Sweet also won the 2010 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and it was named the number one book club pick in 2010 by the American Bookseller Association. This multicultural tale is now read in schools all across the country and has been optioned for a musical and for film with George Takai, serving as executive producer. And I should also say that Jamie was the one that introduced me to the concept of Dropbox. I was going to say that. Do you remember that? I did. It was was a magical, magical thing he taught me about. That's amazing. (laughs)
0: Wow. No, I I absolutely love that book. So I'm so excited to talk to him tonight. So Jamie's work has also been published in multiple anthologies, and he's an award-winning short story writer. He's written across many genres, including speculative, dystopian, crime noir, and middle grade horror. So Christy, your question that you had for us tonight was perfect. I know. Yeah.
2: So Jamie is the great-grandson of Nevada mining pioneer Min Chung who emigrated from Kaiping and he'll tell me if I said that wrong. Kaiping, Kaiping, China to San Francisco in 1856 where he adopted the western name Ford, which we are going to talk about tonight. So Jamie currently lives in Montana with his wife who is a nurse and their one-eyed pug which is so hilarious. His new novel, The Many Daughters of A-Fong Moy, has been named the number one Indie Next pick for August 2022. It will be released in just a few days on August 2nd. Sean, can you bring Jamie on to join us? Hey, Jamie. Hi there,
4: thanks for having me. Uh, this
2: awesome. Jamie, we are so excited to have you. I think the last time I saw you was in a huge room of women <laughs> In Texas, am I right?
4: Yeah, East Texas. People were wearing feather boas. Um, there were, I think, there was a smoking mojito fountain, if I recall. Um, and my my recollections are a little a little hazy of that night, but a good time was that by
2: Well, at least you have hazy ones. Mary Kay and I don't even know if we have any. So um,
3: I remember you? stealing your glasses. <laughs> it
2: was about the same moment where you learned about Dropbox.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: we were all sitting at that back table. Yeah. So Jamie, we're I'm so excited about this book. We've been talking on and on through the years about what to write next. Where do we go? What do we do? And before we dig into what you call, which I love this, your big box of crayons, and we'll get into all of that. I want you to tell us in a nutshell, what the many daughters of A Fong Moy is about. And then our second favorite question that goes with it is, what is it? really about
4: mm-hmm. those are good questions um the book is about inherited trauma it's about epigenetics um we think of uh, genetic inheritance and we think of eye color and hair color um and the book explores the very real possibility that we inherit psychological traits as well resiliency mm-hmm. and uh, levels of empathy and um, in many cases our ability or inability to interact or love other people and it follows the, uh, the genetic line of a, of a real woman. Her name was Afong Moy. She was the first Chinese woman to come to America in 1834. And it it follows, not in chronological order, but it goes through a bunch of subsequent generations. And the main character is actually uh, Dorothy Moy, who's living in Seattle in 2045, just a little bit into the future. And she's someone that's that's trying to... Um, she's, she's, she's living an encumbered life with the issues that she's inherited. She's trying to work her way through those things. But through all of those timelines, there's also a sense of searching and longing of someone seeking someone else. And that's all I'll say for now.
3: <laughs> and
2: it's afongmoi, not afongmoi? Afongmoi?
4: <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's a wrong way to say it. Um, okay. I, I, my publisher says afong. I say afong. Because I think okay. that's how my my relatives would pronounce it, and lots of people say "a fong." And because China has so many dialects, there's no real—I don't think there's a wrong way to say it. Um, okay. Even when you, if there we, is you, a
2: wrong way to say it,
0: I would say it.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> we I, would I nail that I if there's yeah. a wrong
1: Probably way. We wrong we're we're
0: really good at that. Yeah. We're, we're good at, at that. that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, Jamie, <laughs> this idea of five past generations seeking out and connecting with your main character. Dorothy, um, the sixth in line, while love binds them through generations is just astounding. So I know you've talked about being in a dry spell and about feeling like you didn't know what you wanted to write next. And in your author note, you describe this book as your big box of crayons, crayons such as poetry, epigenetics, climate change, Buddhism and the history of the real woman. Oh, I'm going to do it wrong. Afong Moy. There you go. But I promise we'll get to all the other crayons. But first, um, I had to ask you about epigenetics because I've always been fascinated by this. I actually studied this a lot in college and and wrote about it um, a little bit for some publications and things, which so I, I really love that idea. So can you explain to people who might not be familiar with that concept what it is and how did you come across the idea and why did you wanna put it in this novel?
4: Hmm. Um, epigenetics is, is pretty broad. The Probably a more specific term would be transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, which just rolls off your tongue like a Mack truck. So <laughs> <Yeah>. we, just, <laughs> we just say epigenetics. Um, you know, I first learned about it when that study came out in 2013 at Emory University where uh, researchers took um, lab animals, in this case mice, and they introduced a citrus fragrance and they electrified the floor. Um, sorry, mice. And what <laughs> what this did was it quickly habituated the mice to have a panic uh, fear reaction whenever they smelled that scent. And then they found three or four generations later, they could take the offspring of those mice, the descendants of those mice, um, lab animals that had never smelled that fragrance had never been shocked. And when they introduced that scent, they had the same fear reaction. Mm-hmm. And so. It was evidence or at least pointing to uh, the way one traumatic event can be transmitted, you know, can, can cross several generations. And that was just eminently fascinating. Um, I think a lot of us, we have a sense that there's something else going on. I know in, in large communities, Native American communities have talked about generational trauma forever. Um, the descendants of Holocaust survivors have, um, have been parts of studies related to inherited trauma. But I think most of us, when we grow up and we look at our own behavior in relation to our parents and then our children, it's, (laughs) you can only run so far from your genetics. Um, and you see evidence of that. And I was just, I was just wildly fascinated about that. And I was, I was interested in, in Afong's story. But there really wasn't enough there, I thought, for me to build an entire novel. And so, using epigenetics, I could tell her story expressed over all these different generations. Um, and that's that's kind of the rabbit hole that I that I stumbled into with this book. <sighs>
0: Mm -hmm. I I love that that. that's so interesting what an interesting way to see it play out over the course of the novel I I, it's you know it's something I've touched on in my writing because I write about the holocaust something I've touched on in my writing a little bit but much more um much more on the edges of it. I, I think you just confront it so much more directly. It, I, it's brilliant. So um uh, Jamie, for our members who don't know, but we did mention this in the intro, you're the great grandson uh, of a Nevada mining pioneer named Min Chung, who emigrated from China to San Francisco in eighteen sixty five.
2: I and noticed you skipped it. the name of the town.
0: <laughs> I know I did because I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna say it wrong and you know, I'm gonna let that just be on Patty. Why, why, you know, why double down? Why double down? Um <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So he adopted the Western name Ford, and thus, as you say, he confused countless generations. Um, So the dedication to your book actually reads, and and this just, I I don't know, the second I read this, I'm like, I'm gonna like this book, I'm gonna like this guy. The dedication says, to anyone with a complicated origin story, I feel you, (laughs) which I love. So yeah, that's great. So do you think you could tell us a little bit about the origin story of your character, Ah, Fung Did I say it right? I don't know. Probably <laughs> not. we its its like a hundred different ways to butcher the same name. Probably it's, on this show
4: it's, tonight. It's perfect. Yeah, and 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 also Patty, when you said <laughs> Kai that was absolutely correct. But oh,
3: Patty!
4: You, you nailed high? it. You you nailed it. You nailed it. Although I say <laughs> Hoiping Ping because that's Cantonese, so it, it gets even weirder. Oh so, my gosh. Um, yeah, it's uh, there's no wrong way to do it.
0: Um, oh my gosh. Well, that, gosh, that's so, it's so interesting. At um, so I should have attempted to say it after all. I, I wouldn't have sounded like as big of an idiot as I usually do. Oh, no. Um, you, <laughs> you
4: nailed it. You nailed it. Yes. You, you, you evade it. That's the best way. That. <laughs> <laughs> Evasion. <laughs> that,
0: that's my, we're that's dealing, my, yeah. my yeah. general tactic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Jamie, I, I, I'm interested. You talked a little bit about her, but could you tell us a little bit more about? Her origin story—sure. Why she inspired you, and why that inspiration was so great that it became sort of the center point for this whole sweeping, multi-generational novel. I think it's so fascinating.
4: Sure. Um, Afon came to this country, um, and she was—she was—you know—she was written about and celebrated in hundreds of newspaper articles. Um, she traveled widely up and down the East Coast, from you know, Buffalo, New York, all the way to Cuba. And, you know, she was, she was this sensation, but none of those articles or mentions or write-ups have her telling her own story in her own voice. She spoke limited English. It was always spoken through, you know, the, uh, the mouthpiece of her promoters, people who were monetizing her otherness, her exoticness. And she was kind of a sideshow attraction for lack of a better term. And, all the excitement around her, it obfuscates the fact that Chinese women couldn't leave China at that time. And if they returned, the, the punishment was death. And so it's, it's more likely that she was sold into um, wow. this situation, probably by her parents, because at the time, extra daughters in China were, you know, were a, uh, a burden, often not a benefit. And she came to this country. And it's a stranger in a strange land. Um, yeah. There's so much known about her, and then she vanishes from the headlines around 1850. There were rumors that she was touring Europe, that she finally went back to China, um, but the last article about her has her living in a poorhouse in New Jersey, and so it's likely that she had a you know had a tragic life and had a tragic end to that life. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that's I wanted I wanted to give her a voice, especially because she never she never in those articles she's never quoted. It's always through the sensationalized um, lines of her promoters. Um, and I, I just can't imagine how difficult that would be to come to this country yeah. as a Chinese person, but as a Chinese woman. And and this is at a time when it, you know women were not really allowed to be on the street by themselves. That was, you know, a real lady wouldn't do that. You're going to be seen as a, a woman of ill repute. So women at the time already had the deck stacked against them and yet she's you know, she's a minority within a minority. Um, and I, I, I skipped the, the, the second part of the first question of like, what's this book really about? And um, it's really about, it's like all of my entangled abandonment issues Expressed over 400 pages, basically, but <laughs> wow. I I, re- I could relate to to Afong as just never fitting in and yeah. always looking for her place, um, and that's that's kind of the background of, of that main character. And this is my dog Lucy, who will occasionally pop up and say oh, hi. You <laughs> <wanna be laughs> me? Lucy. Hi. Oh, she's she's being shy now. She's re-
3: now she's <laughs> being shy. Yeah, she's
4: right there
3: i love that even the dog is a woman because yeah. Every, yeah, every pov in this book is from a woman's point of view
4: it is it and is.
3: i know that patty's favorite character is the nurse was there a character jamie that you connected more with across time than another
4: um and this is almost cheating but greta who her character is set around 2014 um because my other books are historical fiction Writing in a contemporary setting was such a pleasurable experience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to not have to do quite so much uh, historical research and worry about anachronisms and stuff like that. Um, and she's a tech geek, and that's kind of part of my own origin story. I went to community college as uh, a middle schooler and took computer classes and i'm I'm in this class with people who I thought they were like ninety years old, they were probably three <laughs> years old. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm, you know, I'm 13 years old, so they all look like, um, you know, uh, serious grown-ups to me. Um, and so I, I, I relate to Greta from that standpoint. And plus, she's her narrative is set in Seattle, where I'm from, and so it's just there's so much connective tissue there. It was, a, yeah. it was a joy to write.
3: So it's fair to say that that timeline, the the 2013 2014 timeline, was the one that you felt most at home at. In
4: truly, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was, it, it was the easiest, The for me, it was the most uh, surprisingly fun because I I oh, never, great. I don't, yeah. I've written a couple of short fiction pieces that were contemporary, but for the most part, even my short fiction is all over the place in a different time frame.
2: It's like a whole bunch of mini his, historical novels, <laughs> like novellas in each one. For it's sure. really fascinating. Okay, Jamie, in the opening chapter, Faye sure. Moy reads from an Edgar Allan Oak. Edgar Allen Poe poem.
3: <laughs> I don't know who Edgar How Allen
2: do you know do? Now. First cousin. First cousin. That's,
4: that's the first dollar, first dollar, dollar cousin, store version of Edgar Allen Poe.
2: First <laughs> cousin once removed. Um, without the psychological issues. But, um, but she reads from the poem that says, but we love with a love that was more than love. Gives me chills. So I want to go back for a minute and then we're going to bring Jason on. I want to go back to your box of crayons. I want you okay. to talk about how poetry, Buddhism, yeah. art storms, <laughs> experimental private school, climate change. Whew, how did you do that? How? Because um, it works.
4: Uh, it just about broke my brain. I, <laughs> my, my, my other books are historical fiction and they're set in, a, in the past and a more contemporary timeline and Um, I grew up reading speculative fiction. I, I, and I read, we talked earlier about reading different genres. I read every genre and I, and I love poetry. I'm, I write tons of poetry. I, I never share it with anybody, but it was, you know, it's something that's, uh, it's a creative sandbox that I, I, I play around in a lot. Um,
2: you know, I'm going to ask you about it now.
4: Like,
2: like, send me a poem, but
4: I, I will. Okay, and, and you, you can uh, not share it with the world. <laughs> <laughs> and um,
1: you cannot share you it. You can auction yeah. it off on Twitter. Or
4: something. Yeah, my, my my poetry is it's all like confessional poetry, like Anne Sexton poetry, which I which I love, um, and she just really puts all of herself into her work, and I am just too much of a coward to ever do that <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it's a good creative place to go and i just sort of lock those away in the closet um but uh about the book being my big box of crayons i, I really felt like hotel my first book hotel on corner Bed and Suite. My, my main characters are young um i don't have very many points of view i really looked at that book like my book that had training wheels on it like okay i can't screw this up too badly if i don't you know a lot of you know aspiring authors, they, they want their, their first novel to be, you know, part of a 10 part series with 20 point of view characters. And um, (laughs) it's like trying to play Rachmaninoff on your first piano lesson. Like it's, it's just not, it's not doable to most mortals. But as I was writing these other books, I kept bumping up against, um, and I wanted to tell a larger story. And also I, I sensed from my publisher that they they weren't sure if I could make that transition. Um, and so I was very nervous about writing something so completely different. Um, in retrospect, now I can see how, like with my my first book did really well. And so my second and third books, I would go on tour and people, you know, half the questions were about my first book. So I was I was still living in the shadow of that book. Mm, yeah. And in retrospect, the best way to get out of that is just to write something completely different, which I didn't do that. On purpose, it just—I just was had all these other things I wanted to to try out, and then it just sort of yeah. exploded onto the page when I was finally let out of my cage, so to speak.
2: You let yourself have your cage.
4: I did. <laughs> you
2: did. You were the it. one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I'm going to change.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to stick the landing. I wasn't sure if anyone would get it. Um, my my editor. Um, Back at Random House, um, liked the book, but didn't love it and wasn't, you know, wasn't a real, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't an enthusiastic reaction about um, publishing this. And so I went out, you know, onto the market again as a free agent. I'd never been without a contract since, you know, my first book. And that was a a scary place (laughs) to be to write something completely different, knowing that your previous editor isn't crazy about it. Um, but doing it anyway. Um, and whether it succeeds or fails, at least I, you know, validate my conviction. Good
1: for you. Well, you know, you could not have really created a better segue to our next (laughs) guest, um, because Jason Mott has sort of a similar story that we're also going to be asking him about in just a second. Um, but in a really fun treat, Jamie is actually going to hang around too, because he had a question that he also wanted to ask Jason. So, um, He's going to hang around with us, and um, so we're so excited to get to to have him stay on the screen with us, but also we are so thrilled to welcome Jason.
3: Jason Mott is the best-selling author of four novels, The Return, The Wonder of All Things, The Crossing, and Hell of a Book. His fourth novel, hell of a book, was a read with Jenna book club pick when it was released in twenty 2020, twenty June twenty twenty one, and it was a Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction long list selection, a twenty twenty two Aspen Words Literary Prize long list selection, a Joyce Carol Oates Prize long list selection. Well, I know, <laughs> I know. The novel also won the twenty twenty one Sir Walter Raleigh Prize for Fiction, and it was the winner of the you know, just this little thing we call the 2021 (laughs) National Book Award for Fiction. I hate this guy. It's like like looking in a mirror. It's
2: like, like more or or less,
0: more or less. Yeah. Yeah, It's like blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't done those things really? Really. So yes, I'm kidding. So additionally, Jason's debut novel, The Returned, was adapted by Brad Pitt's production company. I mean, Who Among Us Hasn't Been adapted by Brad Pitt? You know, um, the list goes on. Um, So his production company is Plan B in association with Brillstein Entertainment and ABC. And it aired on the ABC network under the title Resurrection. Jason's also the author of two poetry collections, We Call This Thing Between Us Love and Hide Behind Me. His poetry and fiction have appeared in various literary journals. And he's a Pushcart Prize nominee and and an NAACP Image Award nominee. Jason has a BFA in fiction and an MFA in poetry from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, not that far away from Christie.
1: That's right. So, yeah. um, welcome, Jason. We're so glad to have you.
5: Hey, how's it Hi, going, Jason?
1: Hi, Jason. I <laughs> wish I you won some awards. Just oh. <laughs> I know, I know. We feel a little bit sorry for you, but you know, it's it's been a tough year. It
5: is <laughs> yeah, tough year. Tough year. <laughs>
1: Well, we are so glad you're here tonight. And what a book. I mean, the whole time I was like, it really is just a hell of a book. But it's it's easy to see why this novel has garnered such massive praise. So to start us off, um, by chance, if there's anyone out there who hasn't read it yet, can you tell us what Hell of a Book is about? And then can you tell us what it's really about? (laughs) (laughs)
5: so um the basic elevator pitch is hell of a book is about an author on book tour he's written kind of the first book of his career it's a really big book it is a hell of a book people keep telling him and as he's touring around the country he meets this 10 year old boy who he simply calls the kid and the kid keeps showing up at all these events that he's been to and the longer it goes on it becomes this, this farcical tale of what it's like to be an author but it also leads into a very serious discussion about being black in America and police violence and just the the daily kind of existence and like the things that kind of hang over the heads of certain minorities in, the, in America so yeah so that's kind of what it really bleeds into it starts off being very silly and goofy and then it turns into something a bit more serious but still silly and goofy as it goes along it's
1: such an interesting and unique balance we're going to ask you about that later but that I think is <laughs> what blew my mind is it's like it's both of those things at once, which is just really amazing. Um, but we're so glad that Jamie could stick around, and he actually has a question for you.
4: Awesome! Yeah, um, I mean, I just love that you're going to you're, you're on tour promoting a book about being on tour, um, which the the meta Very aspect meta. of that just yeah. kind of blows my mind. Um, but I have to I have to ask, and it's it's kind of a heavy question, but as a person of color on tour. um, Has this been cathartic? Has it transformed your perception of your travels? Or has it, in some ways, validated some of the challenges of being a Black man in America? And people not knowing that you're a National Book Award winning author, some people in certain parts of the country uh, will will see you and prejudge you and I think, as all of us, um, I'm half Chinese, but I'm, you know, I'm fairly white passing. It's something that we don't even have to consider as we travel, as we step into an elevator and things like that. And it's just those kind of things. I just want to know how's has it has it healed, or has it uh, maybe extended some of the the struggle of 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 being a, an author on tour.
5: Um. Honestly, it's done a little bit of both. Like it has, in many ways, it has healed a lot of the the oddness and uniqueness of being a Black author or any kind of minority author on tour. Like one of the drawbacks of being a minority author in whatever form that minorityness kind of exists is that you're always kind of defined by that role. Like I was always the Black author. Like anytime there was a panel and they needed like a Black author, like they just rung my bell and there I was. Because I wasn't just an author who wrote books about, you know, kind of magical realism stories. I was a Black author first and then author second. And so traveling around um, on my first tour, there was a lot of learning to navigate that. One of the funniest moments that I had, and this is kind of like the the, the fellowship of authors, which I find to be hilarious sometimes. I was in Kentucky, you know, good southern state, <laughs> And my first novel, The Return, when you look at the cover of the book, it has a young white boy standing on the front of the cover. Now I can go into a lot of explanations about where that comes from. It comes from the story. And but the point is, here I was, a black author, black male author who had written this book, and the cover has this young white boy. So I'm at a book festival in Kentucky and sitting literally at the table next to me, you know, they had us paired up, you know, two two authors at a table. You all you were there kind of hawking your wares for the half of the day. So the gentleman next to me was a white male author who had written a book about Michelle Obama. So his book had (laughs) Michelle Obama prominently on the front cover. And so as we're sitting there side by side, this woman comes up to our table and she looks at the books and she looks at us. She looks at the books again and she looks at us again. (laughs) And you can see the puzzle kind of going off in her head where it's like, it was very clear that in her mind we were sitting at the wrong tables. And so she comes up and she looks at my book and she goes, why is there a white boy on the cover of your book? I said, well, it's the central character. One of the central characters of my story. And she looks at the other gentleman and she goes, are you sure you guys aren't at the wrong seats? (laughs) So so it was, you know, we, he and I, both me and the author, we both kind of took it well. We made it, you know, we laughed about it and we made jokes throughout the day that we should just switch seats and see how long before people notice and just see what happens. Um, But you kind of learn to take the punches for that. But at the same time, it is indicative of that component where, if you are a Black author or any kind of minority author you are almost contractually bound in this unspoken way to write about your your, your, your quote-unquote unique view of America and that kind of role of it. Um, I often say that artists in general are the the conscience of a society and so when you're an artist and you're also a minority you are tasked with being the conscience of that specific minority and I think that's a fairly dangerous thing to kind of shackle people with. Yeah. Um, so I struggle with that a lot. But now, you know, it's amazing how when you you win the National Book Award, people suddenly listen to you in a lot of different ways. <laughs> you suddenly get validated by know. people. We're <laughs> 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 not sure if we
0: have any ideas. Sure, sure. That's, that's <laughs> like it was when I won that, too.
5: Exactly. Exactly. Same. 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 But it, it just... <laughs> It just creates a a very different dynamic where yeah. suddenly you are heard in a different way and i found that to be part of part of the the quote-unquote the healing process strangely enough um so yeah it is both of those things touring about this book it is both of those things thank you thank you
0: great question and a great answer what a
2: Yes. No, I feel like I want to listen back on that like three times. Like I know. I, know.
0: I, know. I also I, I also feel like maybe you guys should just talk and we'll just
1: like after Jamie was talking about writing poetry, and then I'm like, Jason writes poetry too. And am like, why are we even here? <laughs> yeah, like, we why are we here? Just, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Uh, we
5: just have a
4: poetry slam.
5: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was backstage listening to Jamie's story, and so much of his story I like, I could totally relate to, like the whole thing about like trying to write something new, living in the shadow of your first look. like yeah all of that I was just backstage just like yes retweet retweet that
4: yeah. <laughs> totally agree with all of that
2: we knew what we were doing when we
4: started
3: <laughs> <laughs> totally totally planned it
4: and, yeah. and exactly. thank you for letting me ask that question I mean it's it's a very personal and it's yeah. it's, a, it's a heavy question, and and I, I get like the very fractional light version of that. Where occasionally I'll do a book event, and someone will come up and say, "What what gives you the right to write about Asian people?" And I'm like, "Well, because you know I ate chicken feet as a child, and this, <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. my grandparents uh, you know were Chinese, and my dad spoke Cantonese, and and so people people yeah. prejudge you um, mm-hmm. as a person of color, um, yeah. and I live in this this." Twilight zone between the two, this demilitarized zone. Um, and so I see the, the extremities. Um, so thank you for, for letting us. No, thank question. you. It was a great question. Thank you. Yeah, it was a
0: great question. You know, it, Jason, before you wrote Hell of a Book, you penned The Crossing, The Wonder of All Things, The Returns. Um, they were all decidedly more toward a a fantasy genre, right? I mean, they were, they were different, but you knew you needed to make a change and you very bravely did. I mean, we talked with Jamie a little bit about this too. As Christy said, it was kind of a good segue because I think um, the roads you've both traveled have a little bit of that in common too. So in an interview, you've said to suddenly walk away from a contract that was existing to go off into the wilderness to make art—that's a very terrifying thing, and I think all of us are getting a little itchy just thinking about that. Itchy in a good way. I mean, I know. <laughs> I, I kind of. It. It. I mean, I think it's a good thing. I think. I think there's something to the idea of needing to reinvent yourself at least a little bit with every book to keep moving forward. But, um, I, I guess I'm just wondering. What was it like to walk away from what you had known and what you were doing very successfully? Did you have moments of doubt along the way that it might not work out for you? And um, and I guess also what advice do you have for people who maybe feel a bit stuck and want to do something different with their lives?
5: Um, Yeah, it was very it was probably one of the most terrifying things I've done since becoming a full time author and kind of writing because, you know, I. I kind of felt like the safe choice, the safe, smart choice was to kind of keep, keep churning out for lack of a better word, the thing that people knew and expected, kind of keep doing the things you're known for. And, you know, you'll, at the very least, you'll kind of maintain where you are. But I also knew that creatively, I was kind of stifling a bit. And I wasn't, I've always prided myself on exploring creative bounds and exploring personal boundaries and just kind of seeing where the art takes me. And i also began to recognize that I was kind of laying that to the side in favor of doing this thing because I was so terrified of losing it. Like I had been a, a full-time author for about seven or eight years at that point, and I was so terrified of losing that. Like I wanted to be able to keep doing that that I had to kind of make this choice. And so I did. Like I kind of like I'm, I'm golfing. I'm gonna just write the story that you know my agent has shot it down a couple of times. My previous editor had shot it down a couple of times. Like the idea of an author on book tour story was not something that anyone seemed particularly interested in. And yet, I knew that it was something that I wanted to write, and so yeah, I went off and was completely just terrified the entire time. I cannot say that enough. I was have a I good friend know, who I've exactly. that's, yeah, that's I've story. got a good friend I've known for like years now, um, almost fifteen years, and I was texting her at one point as I was, you know, hip deep in hell of a book. And I told her, I said, this is going to be my magnum opus of failure. This will be the greatest failure I've ever written because I'm enjoying writing it. It's really weird. It's doing all this different creative stuff, but I can guarantee no one's going to want to read it. I said, it's too weird. I said, I'm loving it. It'll be the book that I write and I put into a closet somewhere and no one ever reads it but me, but I'll enjoy it. And it'll be this thing that I had fun writing. So I had already written the project off before anyone else, my agent, anyone had actually seen any pages of it. So... It was very much this thing that I had to do. And I guess if I had to lay any advice on anyone else about that, I would say you will inevitably reach this point where the business of writing and the art of writing will kind of butt heads and you have to make a decision one way or the other. And there is no wrong decision. Like some people will choose the, the business side of things for for the reasons they need to. And that's fine. Others will choose the art and that's equally fine. But just recognize that that moment will come at some point in your writing kind of journey and you need to be prepared for it. You need to just be okay with the decision you make. Like any decision is fine, but you have to be okay with that. And so I felt really fortunate that, you know, the decision I made turned out as well as it did because yeah, it was a very just nerve wracking experience writing the novel, quite frankly.
0: I bet it was, but I mean, my goodness, thank thank goodness you took that chance. What do you think would have happened to you as a writer and as a person if you hadn't taken that chance, if you had, if you had just stuck to the safe side?
5: I think I would, I would have just been much more unhappy than I am now. Um, And not even because, you know, not even because of like the success the book has had, but when I finished the book, kind of as I was saying, like I was telling my friend, like when I finished it, I was certain that it was going to be a failure as far as, you know, sales and finding a home for it and all those kinds of things, like a From the business side, I was certain it's going to be a failure. But I was so very proud of what the book was. It was doing things creatively I had wanted to do for years. It was doing things personally I had wanted to talk about for years. It was just, it was what I knew I needed to write. And so I was really proud of myself for finishing it, regardless of what happened next. I said, at least I finally got it all out. I finally said it in the way that I wanted to say it. not I didn't try to do it the way Toni Morrison would have done it. I didn't try to do it the way James Baldwin would have done it. I try to do it the way I want to do it. And I think it's the hardest thing is to do something the way that you, your, your creativeness tells you to do it. And so if I had gone the other direction and just kind of churned out something more familiar, I would have been miserable. Um, And as a, as a writer, you're miserable most of the time anyway. (laughs) So why stay with the misery? Why not try the thing that might lead to something fun? And that worked out really well, obviously.
3: (laughs) That's awesome. I read somewhere, um, somebody said, if you're not terrified, you're doing it wrong.
5: (laughs) I completely agree.
2: (laughs) But it's still good to hear you were terrified because, you know, you hear the story. Jamie did it, too. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to write what my heart or gut or imagination or news is saying to write. And you just and weren't terrified. And to know that we're all in the same
5: boat. Yes. 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 (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but
3: not the sinking boat that caught on fire and sank. Not <laughs> the boat not that you wrote about. That we don't want to be on the Okay. <laughs> Jason, one of the most powerful storylines in hell of a book is the tragic police shooting of a young black boy. And it becomes a recurring motif in the book as it appears in conversations and news reports. And you know, obviously, um Real life rears its ugly head. I read that you set up Google alerts to keep track of the shootings, and it became impossibly overwhelming. And there are moments of that that overwhelm in this novel of the pain and the sorrow and the tragedy. But, you know, this novel is also funny, and it's it can be lighthearted, and I think that's part of the genius. You managed to create this complex commentary on race in America while also taking readers through all the range of emotions. And the judge's citation from the National Book Award said, and I quote, in a structurally and conceptually daring examination of art, fame, family, and being Black in America, Mott somehow manages the impossible trick of being playful, insightful, and deeply moving all at the same time. So, you know, we just have one little easy question. How did you do that?
0: <laughs>
3: just tell don't me exactly. don't <laughs> no,
5: just, Maybe.
3: you from you to me just tell me yeah.
5: <laughs> no one else
0: is listening don't worry <laughs> sure thing
5: um well I found this book you know writing writing for dummies and it just it just had everything there you just picked up the steps um
3: I gotta get that book Bye. yeah
5: there it works surprisingly well um, <laughs> So, yeah, it was that part was very difficult, um, obviously.
3: Was it intentional? Um, was it intentional? Yes. Okay.
5: No, it was a thousand percent intentional because okay. um, kind of some of some of the backstory on how things happened was um, I had written years ago. I'd written like a 150 page kind of half a book about an author on book tour. And it was pure comedy, just jokes. And there was no serious discussion going on. It was just kind of anecdotal adventures. And it was very much lacking something. So I put it away. And then around 2017, 2018, I think it was when the Freddie Gray incident occurred in Baltimore and the Baltimore riots and all of those kind of things happened. A friend and I who lives in Baltimore, we were on the phone every day at about 7 a.m. We'd get on the phone for about an hour and we would just talk because he lived in Baltimore. So I wanted to check on him to make sure that he was okay and see what he was going through and kind of decompress, like talk about these things that were happening and what they were doing to us. And that was when I had Google Alerts going about other incidents and other shootings and things like that. So it became so much. Um, I was like, and my friend suggested he's like, why don't you write something about this? Like you're obviously overwhelmed. Why don't you write about it? So I did, I wrote all these vignettes and all these just mixture of memories and stories I'd heard and this, this hodgepodge of stuff had about 150, 200 pages of that. And I knew that I wanted to m- combine the two together because I didn't have the the emotional endurance to do purely the heavy dramatic everything is terrible each page of the book kind of story, and to me there was such a gravitas in those moments in the the discussions of race in America. It was so important to me, and it was so heavy and filled with such tragedy and filled with so many charged emotions that I, I just didn't have the stamina to write three hundred pages of that, and so the comedy section is the author and book tour moments that gave me as a as a writer a chance to breathe it gave me a chance to kind of come up for air and remember that yes the world is tragic and the world is terrible at times but the world is also wacky and beautiful and absurdist at times you have to combine those two things you have to you can never ignore one you you have Mm -hmm. to claim them both and so when i was doing the the process of writing and combining these things um yeah i would spend you know a week or two working on a really heavy dramatic harsh emotionally charged painful section and I would be fatigued I would, be, I would just be tired and worn out and you know kind of hating the world and depressed and I was like I need to laugh so why don't I just spend the next two or three weeks writing this comedic scenes and be goofy and silly and try to be as farcical as possible to make me feel better so I can go back to the big section and write them the harder sections write those again so I think for readers or at least I, my hope was that readers would have that same kind of balancing act where they would get, you know, kind of put underwater by the heavy sections and forced to face these hard topics. But then after an adequate amount of time, come up for, come up for air, get the sunshine of your face, breathe a little bit, laugh a little bit, have fun, mm-hmm. and then go back to those heavy moments, go back underwater and live in that world and come back up again. And so that was what I was trying to do with readers.
3: Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's, um,
2: it it's really not well. the either or, it's the and and. And I yes. like that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Whenever we try to do either or, I think it's a disservice to, to the human experience. We yes. get the end and, you know, there's something terrible going on and something, oh, I'm getting all choked up. Okay. In your acceptance <laughs> speech for the National Book Award, you said, I love this so much. I want to dedicate this award to all the other mad kids, to the outsiders, the weirdos, the bully, the ones so strange that they had no choice but to be misunderstood by the world and by those around them. The ones who were in spite of this refused to outgrow their imagination, refused to outgrow their imagination, refused to abandon their dreams and refused to deny, diminish their identity or their truth or their loves, unlike so many others. I mean, wow. I am sure you said it better. I almost want to make you read that um, <laughs> I, in your voice and in your inflection. But it's so moving. Um, and in this book, you write about those people, the bullied, the outsiders, the mad kids. I have that. Croat, yes, I can't say his name either. On my poster, on my bulletin board right across from me right now, I have that quote by him. Um, In a letterpress poster, it says, the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, burn, burn, burn. So did you draw on any of your own life experience? Because when you say that, when you're speaking to those kids and you have that, that cadence and that language, that sentence is almost a poem. Did you draw from your life experience or from your characters? How did you create that feeling?
5: Yeah, that was wholeheartedly taken from my life and my experiences. Ah, okay. I I was very much the kid who grew up getting bullied by the bigger kids and the older kids on the school bus. Um, you know, I was the kid who I read too much. I didn't you know, I wasn't cool enough. There were all these things that I, I was not that people felt I should be. And it took me decades to kind of grow into loving myself, which is what the book tries to talk about so much. Um, but yeah, like I, I feel that I speak. I wanted to speak to those kids because I've been there. Like, I know how difficult that is, but I also now see that there is another side that you can come out of and be okay.
2: Is that speech saved anywhere that we can hear it or watch
1: you say it? Um, I just said it. (laughs) Yes, Because I watched it over and over again. It's on the national. Okay.
5: Yes, there we go. Yes.
1: We'll post it.
2: Because that is, an I read that like six times. I was like, yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah, I was a little teary-eyed as I read it because I was very overwhelmed. So yeah, <laughs> the voice, the voice that may, that may be shaking a bit as I read that. <laughs>
2: well, there's
3: yeah. a, And Sorry, Mary Kay, go ahead. Uh, uh, this is not a, what we were supposed to ask, but it, it strikes me. I wonder what separates you. <laughs> I know the rule breaker here. What separates <laughs> a kid like you from the kid um, who goes, who takes an AR-15 Buys one on his 18th birthday and goes in and shoots up a school because that kid is a loner. That kid is misunderstood. Is misunderstood. What What do you think made the difference between you and that kid?
5: It's a big question. Um, yeah, art. Art is definitely a part of it. I mean, for me, art and literature and philosophy—weirdly enough, like I—I I got into philosophy at a very young age <laughs> it's just a, as a gateway drug to, to thinking about things. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest differences is that you have to find—you have to find your tribe, and you have right. to make sure that your tribe is not a violent one. You have to make right. sure that the people you, yeah. the people you gravitate towards, the people that are part of your life, are people who are. Compassionate and empathetic, and trying to improve the world, not mm-hmm. through means of violence, but through means of art and action and things of that ilk. And so, for me, you know, I spent many years alone, but I, weirdly enough, like I related to the the philosophy books that I read, and I related to novel, like literature and all of that became my tribe for so long. And so, I made it to college, and then I met like the actual physical people who just mm-hmm. were as weird as I was, and they became my group. Yeah. But you have to choose your group carefully. Um, there can are a lot of people that can...
2: can we please be your group? Yes, and can... okay. <laughs> and I live really close, so yeah. I can be
1: your group.
5: You're all part of my group for sure. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, Jason and Jamie, I know um, we have had a show tonight that we are all going to be talking about for a really long time and our viewers are too. Yeah. So um, yeah. we're not going to let you go quite yet though. Um, we would absolutely love if you could maybe share a writing tip with our viewers and really us. It's it's really for us, but we say it's for we them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jamie, since you have been so patiently waiting, would you mind sharing a writing tip with us first?
4: Uh, sure. I, I often tell people who are Trying to figure this out to stop reading their favorite authors while they're trying to learn how to write, I describe that as trying to lose weight and only reading Vogue magazine. You 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 will die a death of comparison, and it's it's very unfair. You can read other things that inspire you, but um, uh, that, that's that's my, my little bit of advice. I I think a lot of us get frozen in that comparison.
1: Yeah, oh, that's great advice. We have not had, that. yeah. Jason, what about you? Any tips for our listeners out there slash us?
5: Yeah, sure. Um, Jamie's advice was wonderful, by the way. I think my advice is be, be compassionate with yourself. Um, be as kind to yourself as you would be to someone that you love who gave you their writing to read. Um, writers and artists in general tend to be very self-flagellating. We kind of are tyrants to ourselves. We don't give ourselves time to grow into our art. And you have to give, you have to be comp- be patient and compassionate towards yourself as much as you are to those others that you love. You have to love yourself that much to give yourself time to grow.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. so advice. Okay. We have one more question for you guys. We have just a couple quick announcements to make. If you would give us just like two more minutes.
3: Sure. Yeah. Just a quick reminder of our Writer's Block podcast. We'll always drop post links under announcements each time a new one drops a new episode <laughs> drops each friday on the last episode ron and patty talked to laura mcgowan author of we are the luckiest laura has her own podcast called tell me something true and she sure did that in that conversation <laughs> and this week ron will talk to dolan perkins valdez about her novel take my hand
0: this is your friendly weekly reminder to join the Friends in Fiction of official book club if you have not yet. They are having a blast. Of course, it's separate from us. It's run by Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, and there are 13,000 members in that book club right now, which we just we could not be happier for them or prouder of them. So they choose the books, Brenda and Lisa. They host the authors. Um, they have happy hours with our Writer's Block podcast host, Ron Block, and they keep everyone in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. So the next author they have coming up. The book they're reading now is one of our favorites here, Sally Hepworth. I know you guys all loved her when we had her on um, a few months ago, but she's going to be on on August 15th discussing The Younger Wife. So make sure to join the book club.
2: And don't forget that this is the last episode of our spring and summer season. And you two, I cannot even think of a better way to end an absolutely already astounding season. Mm -hmm. I feel verklempt. But anyway, (laughs) after tonight's show, we will be taking a (laughs) two-week summer break to prepare for an outrageous fall season. Wait till y'all see who's going to be there. Wait till you see what we have in store for you.
1: And speaking of what we have in store for you, have you heard that our new Friends in Fiction first edition box is now available? from Booktown and Manisquan and features signed hardback first editions from all three of us in 2023. From all three of us? us. All four
0: Some of us, three yeah. Who would you leave it out, Christy? Which one of us get booted from the box without being told? Man. Maybe it was me. I'm not really sure.
1: Um, <laughs> and a darling friends in fiction to tell. If I don't get these edits done, it's me.
2: It's really <laughs> <from the box. laughs>
3: Okay, and speaking of 2023, <laughs> next year we will do at least four Friends in Fiction live, I said live, events, one during each of our book tours. So stay tuned for news about those four events so you can mark your calendars, make your travel plans to join us as we take our show on the road in April, May, and June, and I think September.
1: September, yeah. Yes. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jason and Jamie back to you. Um, we have a question that we just love to ask that we always get the most exciting answers uh, for. So what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? Um, Jamie, can you start us off?
4: I, I'm sorry. I, I don't quite. Could you repeat the question for me? What, yes. what, what,
1: what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up, like in your household?
4: or? In your oh, life? oh, dear Lord. Um, my, my parents sent me to poetry camp in the fourth grade. Oh, so my God, my I, wow. I, I had no escape. <laughs> <a little laughs> I love this question. It, it was like they just said, We want you to be picked on more than any other child in that school. How can we make that happen? Let's send them to poetry camp instead of little. That's
2: a great opening um, you um, for your memoir, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Yeah. So that's I my my dad wanted me to be a fine artist and my mom wanted me to be a writer. And oh, I um I just have very supportive parents that believed um, you know art saves people.
1: Oh, how incredible. What a great background. That's awesome. What about you, Jason?
5: Um, yeah, it was pretty pretty much pushed very early on that like reading was a big deal. Um one of the coolest things about growing up was We live near this um, library that the children's section was an actual rail car. Like they had like a full full sized rail car attached to the library and the children's section was in there. So my mom and being a small town, everyone knows everyone. So my mom needed to go shopping, which is a pretty far drive. She would drop me and my sister off at the library. And after a while, the librarian, we walk in the door and the librarian would have literally a stack of books for (laughs) each of us. And Ugh. that she had picked out personally for, for us to read. And she would give us these stacks of books and we would go sit in this beautiful rail car and just read for the entire afternoon. That's how we spent our summers was getting like a personalized reading list from this librarian and sitting in this very beautiful rail car reading all day. So that was how important reading was in my household.
2: Wow. Where'd you grow up, Jason, what small town?
5: Uh, it's a little town called Bolton in North Carolina, um, okay. southeast of North Carolina, down near Wilmington actually.
0: Jason, have you have you connected in adulthood with that librarian? I mean, does she know what it influenced you made?
5: No, she passed away some time oh. ago. I have not had, but she was a very, very large part of our community and part of my life in childhood. That's incredible.
0: What a blessing to have someone like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Jamie, Jason, thank you so
1: much for being our guest tonight. You guys have been just so inspiring and so incredible, and um, we really could not have asked for better guests or a better way um, to end this season of the show. So thank you so much. And please come back.
5: Yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. You
1: guys. Good, night. Good night. Good night. Good night, y'all. All right, everybody. Well, don't forget, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Be sure to come back. You'll probably want to rewatch this episode. I know I will. No (laughs) kidding. Me too. Be sure to come back right here in two weeks on August 17th for the start of our exciting fall season. But yeah. I think
2: there's a couple surprises on the two Wednesday That's nights that. Right? Yeah.
1: So, so you can still stop by on Wednesdays at 7. We'll have a there's little. There's still going to be some surprises.
0: Project. It just won't be the yeah. show. We've we'll yeah. got cool stuff for you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Good night, y'all. Good,
2: night, Good night, night, everybody.
0: Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.
4: Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.